My name is Scott Gilliland. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane, and you are in Thrive Worship. We're glad that you're here this morning uh, for this uh, sort of sleepy, rainy morning. There's a lot of rain recently. It's been a sweatpant weather kind of kind of season, so we're glad that you're with us. Or if you're in your sweatpants and digging it and chilling at home, uh, that is awesome. We're glad that you're here with us as well. Uh, as we continue in our sermon series called Greater Than uh, that Didi has referenced, this is a series of messages that we uh, will be sharing We've started a couple of weeks ago. We're going to continue into um, mid-October, uh, where we are talking about the subject of discipleship, and uh, that is a really churchy word that simply means uh, a person following closer in the footsteps of Jesus. It's this sort of task that we are about our whole lives long of trying to make uh, our heart, our mind, our soul, and our actions reflect more like Christ than they do uh, who we were before we knew who Jesus was. And so, when we talk about discipleship, usually we talk about it in the context of a cost being associated with it, the cost of discipleship. It's a biblical principle. Jesus teaches on this. He says, you have to take up your cross to follow me. And he's talking about a figurative cross, this sort of sacrifice. This There's some things that we're going to have to give up that maybe some burdens we have to take on if we're going to follow closer in Jesus' footsteps because we know that his life was not an easy one. But the Bible is also clear that the life that God is calling us into is more abundant, is more meaningful than the life that we're leaving behind. And so, yeah, there's a cost. Yes, there's sacrifices to be made. But also, what is it that we stand to gain? Why is the life with God, the life following Jesus, the life becoming more like Christ greater than the life that we lived before? Right? And that's what we are talking about during these six weeks. Uh, the first week we talked about just in basic general terms, why is a life of faith greater than a life without God? Last week we talked about why is life as a part of a faithful community, why is a life of relationships greater than a life spent alone and by yourself? This week we're going to talk about generosity. Why is a life of generosity greater than a life of greed? Why is a life of generosity greater than a life of of greed. And that seems like a really simple, easy to answer kind of question. We know that greediness doesn't sound good. It's not something we're supposed to do. We know that generosity does sound good. It's something we're supposed to do. So that might seem like a simple, straightforward, easy answer. And I hope to complicate that for you today. One reason I'm excited about this morning is we're going to be looking at a scripture from a letter in the New Testament. And to set us up for this, before we get into scripture, I always think it's important to understand what we're about to step into. So if you know nothing about the New Testament, it starts out with the four Gospels. These are four different ways of telling the story of Jesus. It's the same message, but told in different ways um, and for different purposes. Uh, But the the Gospels are the story of who Jesus was, why he came here, and what he did. Life, death, resurrection. And and then there's the book of Acts, which is uh, uh, written by the same author as Luke, and it's the story of the early church, and it's sort of an explanation of how the early church first grew. It talks a lot about Paul and about Peter, these two great early church leaders. And then um, there's a whole slew of letters. A lot of the New Testament is comprised of letters, actual historical letters that were sent to people or to places or to churches, or in some cases, we're not sure who exactly they were sent to, but they were, we know they were sent to somebody. And these letters are fascinating because on the one level, they are historical documents. These were instructions being given to a people in a place in a time for real specific purposes, and sometimes they're very practical and they address real world issues, and yet so much of these letters still apply today. You know, the theology that's developed in these letters, it becomes the foundation for Christian theology up until right now, for the last 2,000 years. 
And a lot of the practical teaching that's in these letters, um, that's when it gets a little bit trickier because sometimes the practical teaching makes a whole lot of sense for the date and time and place in which it was written. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for today. And then there's some practical teaching that made a whole lot of sense then and it makes a whole lot of sense now. Because, newsflash, the world has not changed that much in 2,000 years. There's some details that have shifted. But by and large, the human experience and the world that we live and know um, has not changed that much in 2,000 years. And, and 1 Timothy chapter 6 is a great example of these two different types of practical teaching. I say all this to say this. When you go into the letters, don't think that you can just apply whatever is said in the letter immediately, literally to your life today. It doesn't always work that way. So today we're going to be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 6, and you might go home and you might say, wow, Pastor Scott preached this really great. I know you're going to say this, wow, Pastor Scott preached a really great sermon on 1 Timothy chapter 6, but it's interesting. He started in like verse 5. I wonder what it said at the very beginning. And then you're going to hear the author of 1 Timothy um, talk about why slaves should obey their masters. So that's a practical teaching that may have been very relevant and needed at the time it was written. But obviously, we don't believe that the Bible supports modern-day slavery, correct? Amen? Please? Good, good. It wasn't quite 100%. We're going to work on that one. That should be an easy amen. That should be like the easiest amen I ever get in my preaching career. So we don't believe the Bible supports modern slavery. Amen? Amen. Amen. Very good. Um, so it's important when you go into letters because they are written so, in some ways, they are so practical. Now, sometimes you'll get lost because there's a lot of heavy theology, but in some ways, they are so practical. But be careful about that one-to-one translation, uh, because sometimes what we need to do is we need to interpret what was right then and understand how there may be a new truth for today, and that doesn't mean that it's irrelevant, that doesn't mean that it's not holy, doesn't mean it's not Scripture. I think that 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, is absolutely one-to-one practical for today, because 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, talks about money, and money hasn't changed a whole lot in 2,000 years. And the pull of money on our hearts and on our minds and on our souls and on our strength has not changed a whole lot in 2,000 years. In fact, I would argue that the culture that was present in the Greco-Roman Empire is really not that different than the culture that is present in the DFW area today. Would you say that our culture is one that values money, that values status, that values the appearance of wealth, that values these kinds of things? Would you say that keeping up with the Joneses is alive and well? Are the Joneses here this morning, by the way? I'm kidding. kidding. (laughs) We're all keeping up with you. Um, So with all of that in mind, we're going to go into a, a piece of Scripture that is really, it's one of these nice parts of the Bible that says what it means and means what it says. Um... But what it means and what it says is, is some really challenging stuff, and we're going to dig around in that today. So with all that, let's say a word of prayer, invite God into this moment, and ask God to uh, make this scripture come alive for us today. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for the rain. We know that rain in parts of this country has been very destructive, um, and yet rain is also very constructive, and where we are, the rain is a blessing, and we give you thanks. God, we remember those who have been fearful of rain and who are in a very different position this morning, who may not have an air-conditioned church to walk into, who may not have a home to go back to, and God, we keep them in our prayers as well. 
And God, as you challenge us this morning with these words that we find in a letter to Timothy, would you work in our hearts? Would you challenge and convict us as we wonder what it means to truly be generous? As we wonder what it means to pursue you or to pursue other things. God, we simply ask that you would make these words come alive for us, make them leap off the screens and off the pages of our Bibles and into our hearts that they might change the way that we live our lives. All this we pray in the name of your precious and holy Son. Amen. So the author says this, he's talking about um, false teachers at this part of the letter, and we're towards the end. This is like the very last chapter. It's, he's wrapping things up, and, and a lot of times, um, you know, these letters will end with kind of a final warning, um, and, and so this is, this is one of those sort of final warnings. He says, uh, these false teachers, he says they, but I've put these false teachers, um, we're, sorry, we're beginning a little bit, uh, yeah, they think that, okay, yes. Very good. These false teachers think that godliness is a way to make money. Yeah, it's the end of this first verse you've got. You can put it up there. There we go. They, they, that's the false teachers, they think that godliness is a way to make money. Actually, the author says, godliness is a great source of profit when it is combined with being happy with what you already have. We didn't bring anything into the world, and so we can't take anything out of it. We, meaning the faithful church, the faithful Christian community will be happy with food and clothing, bare necessities. But people who are trying to get rich fall into temptation. They are trapped, and I love... So this is written in the voice of Paul, and you know it is because it says this, right? This sounds so much like Paul. They are trapped by many stupid and harmful passions. Only Paul would say stupid in the letter to a church. You're being stupid. They are trapped by many stupid and harmful passions that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We've heard this before. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some have wandered away from the faith and have impaled themselves with a lot of pain because they made money their goal. Who's feeling really good right now? Golly. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God, right? Thanks be to God. Oh, that's what I wanted to hear when I came to church this morning. So I've got a very, uh, what I think is kind of a provocative statement to start off this sermon with. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping at first you hear it and you go, I don't think that's true. And then I'm hoping during the course of the message you begin to think, well, okay. And then I hope by the end you're going out and you're sharing this provocative message with your friends and family. And the statement is this, everyone is generous. I think everybody is generous. I want you to think of everybody you know, everybody you are aware of. I want you to think of the richest person you know and the poorest person you know. I want you to think of the person who gives the most money and the person who is the most selfish. I want you to think of yourself, everybody in the known universe of you. And I would say everyone is generous. But <laughs> my caveat is this, everyone is generous. It's just a question of what is given and why. Everyone is generous. It is just a question of what is given and why. This is the message I've been wrestling with this week. To help explain what I mean by that, i got to tell you a little story. So when Reagan and I were in seminary, we had the opportunity uh, to go to the Holy Land, to Palestine and Israel with the Perkins School of Theology, with Perkins classmates of ours. And it was an amazing experience, and I'm not going to tell you about any of the cool places that we visited that were like holy and religious and wonderful um, and, and spiritual. I'm going to tell you about the markets in the old town of Jerusalem. 
because uh, that's where the story comes out of. So in the town of Jerusalem, there, in the old town, uh, there, it's all these cramped markets all next to each other, and they're all full of stuff that they're trying to sell to tourists because tourism, as you can imagine, is the number one economy in Jerusalem. And so um, we had spent, Jerusalem is kind of a, a, you know, sort of your base of operations when you're in the Holy Land. You know, you can get basically anywhere you want to go in a day in Israel, so you'll go somewhere and then come back and spend the night. You'll go somewhere, come back and spend the night. And, uh, and so during the course of our two weeks there, we'd spend a good amount of time in the old town of Jerusalem, as you might expect. And so towards the end of the trip, we were going to be spending another afternoon there. And you know, I know you're like, another afternoon in Jerusalem. Oh, man. He has like Forrest Gump. Then I met the president again, you know. Um, so we had to spend another afternoon in the old town of Jerusalem. But, you know, we'd all bought all the things we were going to buy. We had all our trinkets. We had all our little, you know, Jesus stuff that we needed to bring back with us. And, uh, and so, I mean, really, there's not a whole lot to do in the old town of Jerusalem except to buy stuff. And so we were just like, what are we going to do with our time? And so um, that's when I came up with the best, worst idea I've ever had. And uh, I said, what if we do a 10-shekel challenge? And so shekels are the currency uh, in Israel, and I have no idea how much they're worth, and um, that's part of the problem. And so I said, what if we go into the, into the market, and everyone has 10 shekels, and you try to get the best item. I didn't say, you know, most expensive. I just said the best. You know, you go and get the best thing you can get. You know, haggle away, because haggling is big there. Haggle away, and whoever comes back at the end of the day with the best item, they... I don't know, they win pride or something, you know. It was just something to, to, to spend our time doing, and it, and it went terribly. Because um, it turns out the 10 shekels are worth like three bucks, right? And so you're walking into this marketplace, and, and like I'm picking up this beautiful, ornate, mosaic, you know, detailed plate that some poor old woman had spent 70 hours making. I'm like, hey, can I give you three bucks for this, you know? And I know it's shocking, but I got kicked out of some markets, right? I actually learned some new words in Arabic that I hadn't known up until that point, and I'm pretty sure by context clues I know what they meant, and they weren't nice words. Um, I got thrown out of a lot of places. I'm pretty sure my face is plastered on walls of marketplaces in Old Town of Jerusalem. If you ever visit with your family, keep an eye out for my mugshot. Um, because what I was offering them, I didn't understand the exchange rate, and so I didn't realize that I was actually being very offensive to a lot of these shopkeepers. And I ended up with this little magnet uh, of a windmill that sits in Jerusalem. The Dutch gave Jerusalem a windmill. That's the end of that story. They just were like... <laughs> I noticed a surprising lack of, uh, I noticed a surprising lack of windmills. Here, have a windmill. You know, so there's this like big Dutch windmill in the middle of Jerusalem. I'm like, that's weird. Um, but I got a magnet with that on it. Uh, so um, that was our 10 shekel challenge. Like half our group was getting kicked out of places that day. Uh, it did not go well. I share the 10 shekel challenge story to illustrate the following two things. Number one, when you're going to go out and buy things, you got to know what your currency is. And number two, you got to know its value, right? Otherwise, you're going to have a bad time. Now, this may seem like a duh kind of statement. When we go out and we buy things, when we go out and spend our money, we know what our currency is, right? And we know its value, and that goes really well. But when you find yourself in a foreign place and you don't really understand your currency and you don't really know its value, it's not going to work well. How does that apply to today? First reason I believe that everyone is generous is because I believe there is more than one type of currency in this world. Now, obviously, when I say currency, we think of what? You know, you pull out your wallet, you're at the store, you got your dollar, right? We think of money. Money is absolutely a currency in this world. But there's more than just money. I think one reason if we're going to talk about generosity, we have to expand our view of what really is currency. Another currency that we have that I bet a lot of us may think about now that your brain's sort of spinning, where's he going with this? We have our time, right? We have our time. Now, I, I, had, I was going to print off these little cool 
dollar bills that had like these words written on them and the printer failed and I about had an office space moment upstairs. It's fine. Um, but then I noticed that like the things that are our currencies, we actually keep very close to our bodies. So we're going to get creative for a second. So I've got my watch here, right? Like time is a currency and how we choose to spend our time is important. Um, I would argue that relationships are a currency, right? Like I keep close to me. Of course, now I've got all the notifications that our live streaming has started, so give me one second. But on my phone, right, close to my body, it's the most beautiful girl in the world, right? It's my daughter, Andy. She's awesome, and she's making her, like, rock star face right now, and I love everything about her. Um, my relationship with Andy is a currency. My relationship with Reagan is a currency. My relationship with my friends is a currency. Don't believe me? How many nights have you sacrificed, have you spent what could have been a date night doing something else? I think about for myself, how many bedtimes with Andy have I spent doing something else? When I could have been with my daughter, instead I was spending that potential relationship and I was spending that to be engaged in usually work stuff or maybe something else, maybe something important, but it's a currency. Friendships can be a currency. The time that we could be spending, investing in those, we're spending those potential times and we're using it for something else. I think, real generally, our energy, right? Coffee gives me energy. I keep this close to me all the time. How do you spend your thoughts? And how do you spend your emotional energy and your spiritual energy? How do you spend your time thinking and praying and really worrying and, and fearful? I spend so much of my energy on things that aren't productive. Now, if you were to take a look at these currencies of money and time and your relationships, your, your marriage or your, your romantic relationship, your, if you're a parent, your relationship with your child, your relationship with your friends, your own personal energy, your, your mental energy, your physical, your emotional, spiritual energy, the other thing that we have to do, once we understand our currencies, the second thing we have to do is we have to understand their value, right? Otherwise, we're going to have a hard time when we go out to spend and if I were to ask you, being honest, how would you rank those in terms of value? You know, which of those is the most valuable currency you've got and which is the least valuable currency? Now, I know that like in our, in our you know, good Christian hearts, we'd love to put money at the bottom of the list. And that's what the author of 1 Timothy is begging us to do is saying, hey, money ought to be the least valuable currency on your list. But if we're being honest, it's probably a little bit higher. I bet if we were to do an honest uh, sort of look at how we value these currencies in our lives, it'd be a little out of order from what we'd, we'd really like. And you know what I notice about myself is that I tend to hold on to the things that I think are the most valuable. Right? Like of all of the things, I don't mean people, I mean like stuff in my life, the last thing that I would ever want to part with is my wedding band. It's a super special object, not just because it's a wedding band, but because, you know, the, Reagan is like super intentional and way better person than I am. And this is, a, this is her promise ring that was melted down and mixed with some other metal and turned into my custom wedding band, right? Like, I don't deserve her. Yeah, that's the rest of this message is how I don't deserve my wife. No. I could lose everything in my life, all the stuff I would be willing to part with, and this would be the very last thing 
It's the most special. It's the most valuable thing to me. So I keep it close. I never take it off, and I would never give it away. The things that are most valuable, we tend to hold on to the longest, and the things that are least valuable, we tend to spend. We tend to get rid of. We tend to use in transactions, right? And so do an inventory of your life. How does your spending habit... Does your spending pattern reflect your currency's value? If you say that your relationship with your child is the most important thing, but you just missed the third soccer game of the season, and it just started, is it? Is it really? If you say that, you know, self-care is important, oh, yes, I know I need to take care of myself, but the last time you spent even an hour of time taking care of yourself was God knows when, is it really valuable to you? Is it? If you say that your marriage is the most important thing, but I were to say, when's the last time you kept that close and you made time for that and you, and you spent other things to make sure that could happen, is it valuable? Is it? And these are questions I ask myself all the time. You know, th- there have been seasons in my life where I'm like, I just missed four bedtime routines this week. That is unacceptable. I can't do that. I can't say that I love my daughter and be present with her 10 hours a week. That's not okay. So does your spending pattern, does the way that you spend these currencies, does that reflect your value system that you, that you like to have? Or if you were to be honest with your inventory, is it really out of whack? And our scripture this morning is telling us to shove money as far down that list as we possibly can. It really ought to be the last thing. It ought to be the least valuable thing in our lives. Because we know that everything else is so much more important. I said generosity, it depends on what you're giving, right? I think there are people who are very generous with their time. And unfortunately, I think there are people who are very generous with their relationships. One of the most tragic things in the world is being a pastor in this context and seeing parents spend so much potential relationship for the sake of career, spend so much potential relationship with each other, with their children, for the sake of finances, And then the kid graduates, and they come back when they have to, and they wonder what happened. I think there's a lot of people who are generous. I think everybody is generous. Number one is it matters what we understand we're spending. There's different types of generosity, and not all of them are good. There have been seasons in my life where I've been very generous in an awful way. I have been so generous with my marriage and so generous with my relationship with Andy. I've been willing to give those things away in the sake of these things that don't really matter. So we've got to understand what our currencies are. The second thing is we've got to understand who or what we are being generous to. Everyone is generous. It's a matter of what and why, right? The why. Who and what are we being generous to? There's a lot of things that we can give to. There's a lot of things that we can spend these currencies on. Obviously, we can spend them on God and on our faith. I hope that's important to us. Although, if I'm being honest, even as a pastor, frequently that goes way too far down the list. I can be generous to myself. Sometimes that's healthy. Sometimes that's unhealthy. We know the difference between the two. I can be generous to my career. Now, that's a real-life issue, right? We have to have careers, many of us. We have, to, we have to have a job. We have to work hard. And there are some weeks where my job just simply is not going to get done in 40 hours, right? That's a real-life issue. Uh, okay. But if that keeps up over and over and, and a season or a week becomes a season or a season becomes a year or a year becomes five years, 
eventually, how often do you find, when will you finally say, you know what, I have been too generous to my career. I got to start giving to something else. (laughs) My career has received a lot of me. And there's these other areas that are being neglected. We can be generous to our spouse. I hope that's true. We can be generous to our children. I hope that's true. We can be generous to our friendships. I'm learning more and more as I get older how important that is. We can be generous to our community. We can be generous to the world. There's a lot of things that we can be generous to. Do you see now why I think that everyone is generous? It just depends on how we define generosity. I think there's a lot of people in Dallas who are very generous to their careers. I think there's a lot of people in Dallas who are very generous to their finances. I think there are a lot of people in Dallas who are generous in a really unhelpful way. I think the gospel is powerful and potent because it's not simply theological, it's also practical, and it's saying that life of taking out all the currencies that are supposed to matter and spending them in the name of things that don't really matter, that life we got to leave behind. Because guess what? You can't take it with you. When you, when, when you go up to heaven, God's not going to say, well, let me pull up your bank account real quick. Let me see how that went. God's not going to say, ooh, you've got your name badge from the corner office. That's cool. That's so cool. doesn't work that way. We can't take those kind of things with us. So how are we investing our currencies when you do an inventory of your life and you think about, okay, these are the currencies that I've got, these are the ways that I'm spending them, does the way that you're investing your currencies reflect your stated priorities? This is a question I've got to come back to time and time again. I heard someone say uh, the four C's, and I'm forgetting one of them right now, but it's, it's how we use our checkbook and our calendar and our something else and our contemplation. This wasn't in my sermon. I heard this yesterday. It just came back to me. But how are we investing these things that we know are important, these things that we say have value? Are we investing them in things that we also say are important to us? Right? It's, not important enough, it's not good enough just to say these are my currencies, but also what am I investing in? If we look at the list of God and myself and my family and my children and my spouse and my friendships and my community and my world and my career, are we investing in those things in the order of their priority? I told you all this is going to be a fun sermon, right? I have to come back to this question all the time because the reality is that is so easy to lose sight of and we allow our life to dictate our priorities rather than we dictating our life's priorities. And I think what, what the author of 1 Timothy is calling us to is calling us to take control back over um, our life, not taking control back from God, but taking it back from the world and handing it back to God, right? Because the world around us will set those priorities for us. It's on us to be able to reprioritize them and say, this is how I'm going to spend the currency in my life. So the, one of the most misquoted scriptures in the Bible is the love, of all, the love of money is the root of all evil, right? We love to hear people say, money is the root of all evil. No, it's not. No, it's not. That's not what the Bible says. The love of money is the root of all evil. It says, some have wandered away from the faith and have impaled themselves with a lot of pain because they made money their goal. I think money can be the source of a lot of good. I'd be in the wrong line of work if I didn't believe that. Um, I know that money can do a lot of good. You know, we live in a world that is transactional. We live in a world where resources are important. We live in a world where putting money towards things that are important and things that make a difference can do a lot to help this world. Money in and of itself is not the root of anything. 
Money is just a thing. It's just stuff. The love of money is the root of all evil. So what the author's saying there is that when that priority jumps to the top, when money becomes the most valuable resource, and when making money becomes the greatest priority, and that's what all of our investment is about in our lives, that's when trouble begins. So this is where financial generosity in particular becomes important. And it's why Jesus teaches on it, and it's why Paul reiterates it, it's why the church has taught on this for 2,000 years. Not because we just decided one day that we wanted to have a building that ran and we wanted to have bank accounts and we wanted to have stuff. That's, that's not why we care about financial generosity. The reason we teach it is because first and foremost, it's a spiritual practice. Because if I go to Jesus and I say, Jesus, I'm ready to follow you. Jesus says, great. I said, I am ready to give my time. I am ready to sacrifice date nights. I am ready to sacrifice bedtimes. I am ready to sacrifice my own thoughts and energy and heart. I'm ready to give all those things to your service, God. Put me to your work. And Jesus says, great. There's this wonderful ministry down the road doing great work. They don't need your time. They need funding. Can you, can you give them some money? Oh, Jesus, I'm out. What did I just reveal? I just revealed the list of my priorities. We teach financial generosity in the church, first and foremost, because it's a spiritual practice, because the more comfortable I am opening up my wallet and parting with my money, the more it can be a reminder that the money is the least valuable currency in my life. It's a personal, spiritual reminder that I need not to get tied to this, because this isn't going with me. And this can actually do a lot of good. That's the other reason we teach financial generosity. Because this, now stay with me now, if this is the least valuable currency in our lives, why would we want it to stay this? It can't go with us. It's not valuable compared to the other things that we can spend. So why in the world would we want to keep money and save money and make it money? I give personally, now I'm going to get in sort of personal territory. I give in general because it's a personal spiritual practice. It reminds me that finances are not what I build my life upon. It reminds me that it's the least valuable currency. Scott Gilliland, the person, not the pastor, the person gives to the church, Lover's Lane and generally, because I believe in a God of transformation. And I believe that if God can take my dollar and make it into literally anything else, it is improved. Right? Do you see what I'm saying? If it's the least valuable thing that I know in this world, if it becomes literally anything else, it is improved. And so I give my money to the church because I'm saying, God, please don't let this stay money. Please put this to use to make it into something. I don't care if my dollar helps to fund uh, extra supplies for the local school, which then allows a child to become more engaged in their school programs, which then allows that child to pass reading in the fifth grade of a standardized test. I just had a conversation with someone this past week talking about this very thing. She's a teacher in a, in a school where she is stressed out because she has kids that if they don't pass reading by the fifth grade level, the odds of them ever graduating are close to zero, and she knows what that lo life looks like to them. If my dollar can help that school, buy one book, can buy one page of one workbook, if I help to move that kid one inch closer to passing reading in the fifth grade, it's improved. 
Here at Lover's Lane, I think one of the most powerful things that we do, and it's one of the reasons why I still believe in giving to the church, and there are a lot of nonprofits that deserve our generosity. There's a lot of nonprofits that do a lot of powerful things for our community and for the world. The reason I'm still committed to giving to the church, I'll tell you right now, is an experience that, that confirms in me why the church is still relevant, is when I went to prison to preach. <laughs> When I went to prison to preach, we have one of the most fantastic prison ministries in this church, and if you, do, if you know nothing about it, and if it interests you at all, or if it makes you terrified, I'd say please sign up and volunteer and go down to Palestine, Texas, and see the men down there who are worshiping. I walked into a space, this gymnasium, with 250 men in church. They know how to worship. Y'all don't really know how to worship. I love y'all. I love y'all. Like, y'all are my people. I love y'all. Y'all don't know how to worship. These dudes know how to worship. Like, they're in a gymnasium with, you know, nothing like this. They got a couple of instruments. But what they have is people willing to come and preach a gospel of hope. This is why I believe in the church. This is why I believe in giving to the church. Because these men are incarcerated and are in a situation that ought to be sucking the hope right out of them. They ought to be looking at the rest of their life and thinking, there's not point to this. And because our church is willing to invest in them, because these dollars can be turned into a worship service at an, at an inmate facility miles and miles and hours away from here, there are men who are able to see hope for the very first time in a long time, and then they get out, and the recidivism rate amongst these men is tiny compared to what it should be. I mean, it's tiny in general. It's tiny compared to what it should be. Do you see what I'm saying? If my dollar can turn into hope for an inmate, if my dollar can turn into reading for a fifth grader, if my dollar can turn into a single mom only needing to work one job instead of two, if my dollar can turn into a facility that can welcome in rainbow days and and impact children who are affected by homelessness or affected by domestic violence, if my dollar can do literally anything, it's better. So if I believe that to be true, why would I not open up my wallet and give? I think that when the church dodges the subject of financial generosity, we reveal something very dangerous. And that is we are unwilling to talk about the one thing that ought to be the lowest on the list. And it might be the most countercultural message that the church has to preach in America today because America loves its money. Now, in just a moment... This is not a bait and switch. You're going to hear us talk about uh, financial giving for the next two years. I want to be clear. I also want to be clear about this. I think that you should give to Lover's Lane. I've explained why me and my family choose to tithe to Lover's Lane. We tithe as members of this church, not simply because we're pastors of this church. We believed in this mission a long time ago before we became reverends. But I also want you to know that financial generosity doesn't just stop inside these walls. Right? That's why tithing... The idea of a a 10% tithe is sort of this Old Testament principle that is still very practical, and if that's what works for you, great. But what Jesus preaches is a radical generosity that says, I'm going to keep giving and keep giving and keep giving of this resource that I know is worthless because if it turns into anything else, it's going to be something amazing, and I'm going to keep doing that until I meet my maker. And so what I want us to be careful about is in a moment we're going to get these, these commitment cards. And, I, and, and like I said, I hope that you fill those out. I hope that you join us for these next two years. We're going to talk about why it's two-year campaign. And, and here's a fun hint. We're not doing a stewardship campaign next year. Somebody say amen. Um, 
I hope that you fill those out, and I hope that you also still feel restless. I hope that your concept of generosity has been unsettled, as it has been for me this week. I hope that you go outside these walls and realize that the generosity doesn't stop. That as Christians, we are called to be sacrificial. That we are called to give away of ourselves. That we are called to invest these currencies that we say are everything from invaluable to valuable. We are called to be giving of ourselves, not only to the church, but in the whole world as well. And the moment we feel our hands clench a little bit tighter around this thing, we're reminded that we are not done yet, that the work on our souls is not done yet. I'm, I'm just, I'm going on too long, so I need to invite Reagan up. I'm going to pray as she does. Um, I think generosity is an important topic. I don't think we talk about it enough, and I don't think we talk about it the right way. I hope that you can go home this week and think about how you are spending your time, how you are spending your relationships, how you are spending your energy. Come on, cut me off. And, and, um, <laughs> Tony, yeah. turn them off. And I hope that it doesn't stop with a commitment card. I hope it starts with that. I hope it doesn't stop with a commitment card and offering on a Sunday morning because generosity is about much more than that.